Hello, this is Robert Barge. Welcome to Redemption's Table, where every week we will gather around this table with a special guest to explore the most appetizing ingredient in this menu called life, redemption. I believe in redemption. I believe everybody hungers for redemption, everybody. And the truth is, redemption is all around us every day. It is a recipe that God the Creator sets before us every single moment of our lives. Unfortunately, so much emphasis is placed upon the bad, many have difficulty seeing, experiencing, and tasting the good. So I'm setting out on a journey, going table to conversation, to accentuate the reality of redemption in the lives of everyday people like you and me. A reality that, I believe, finds its ultimate expression in Jesus of Nazareth, who is the not-so-secret ingredient to the redemption we all seek. So, come hungry, join the meal, because party of redemption, your table is now ready. Well, hello everyone. Welcome once again to the table. I'm glad you're with us today for a very different conversation. You and I. That's who is at this table today. I'm going to be talking with you. Usually we have a special guest. Today I don't have a special guest. I feel led to do something a little bit different, something very much out of my comfort zone, something I've never done before. And I'll explain in just a moment. We are in a very unique moment, have been for about the last two to three months here in our nation, around the world. It's like the whole world was placed on pause. One of my key verses is Psalm 46.10. God used this verse so much in my life for the last 10 years, and that verse is, Be still and know that I am God. Man, there's just been so much still time, quiet time, time to listen. I Part of what I do, I'm not an essential worker. Consequently, I have had a lot of downtime. I've been doing some writing, but I've been doing a lot of listening, a lot of reading, a lot of leaning in and trying to sense what very special things and very unique things God is trying to say to me during these days. And I hope that we are all doing that. I hope that whenever this pandemic runs its course and whenever things return again to where we're out there and out and about and flying and visiting family and all the things that we love to do, I hope that there's a difference in the way that we go back to these things. And I just want to share a little bit about how God has been speaking into my life these past few months. And I need to set the framework here because, again, what I'm about to do is radically different. I don't know that I'll ever do this again. Then again, I might. It's just strange. I want to set the framework. I want to just kind of lay down a few guidelines you need to know about me. Number one, what I'm about to share, this is the world as best as I can remember it. That's a borrowed line from a Rich Mullins song, Jacob and Two Women. What I'm about to share is the way that I see things. Doesn't mean I'm right. This, this is just how I have perceived things. This is the world as best as I can remember it. Number two, what I'm about to share, there are no heroes or heroines here or no villains or villainesses. And I may share some things that I don't mean any offense by at all. Just hear me. And I'll be happy to listen to you if 
some of these things strike a chord and you want to give me a call or shoot me a text or whatever. Number three, as I said, I have been, I'm, I'm constantly listening and learning and discovering. It's just the way that God wired me. I have this tremendous curiosity. For example, I'll give you a couple of things. The last few days, I've just recently learned that George Washington Carver, this incredible genius of a scientist and inventor, uh, the one who helped save agriculture in Alabama when the boll weevil came along and, and invented so many uses for a peanut, George Washington Carver, one of his practices is he would get up at 4 a.m. every morning and go take a walk in the woods. And one of his favorite verses of scripture is Job chapter 12, verses 7 and 8. And it says, but ask the animals and they will teach you, or the birds of the air and they will tell you, or speak to the earth and it will teach you, or let the fish of the sea inform you. I was like, wow, I didn't know that. And I think that's a pretty cool way of looking at things. It appeals to me because I love to be out in nature. So that's one thing I've learned recently. Part of my plans before all of this began, I intended to take a summer vacation next month. I was hoping to go to Acadia National Park for part of the week and go to Boston the other part of the week. And those plans have been canceled. But I decided to look at a video about Acadia National Park. And as I'm watching this video on uh, Amazon Prime, I learned about a unique phenomenon in geology called glacial erratics. Glacial erratics. A glacial erratic is a glacially deposited rock differing from the size and type of the rock native to the area in which it rests. In other words, if you're out hiking and you see this rock and you're like, that rock doesn't belong here. There's nothing else like it around. And it's, how did it get here? That's a glacial erratic. And so I made that discovery. So I just use those as a couple of examples, things I've learned recently, just have a curiosity. The fourth thing, I practice paying attention. I just, I remember things. I can go back 40 years, 50 years. I can go across a crossroad and suddenly be taken back. It's like, I, why do I remember all this stuff, you know, from 40 years ago, 50 years ago. And, you know, even last week, it's like, I identify with place and things that happen here and things that God taught me. And, and I've put into habit in my own life daily just paying attention. I journal. Um, my mind, I'll just tell you in the last nine years, my mind moves at a different speed, partly because I willfully slow it down. But I have a habit every morning and I will do this in the morning. I did this this morning. Every morning I start my day as I'm having my time alone with God with a cup of coffee. I will pause and I will reflect on the day before. And I will do this for two reasons. Number one, I keep a gratitude list. And I will go back and think over yesterday and just list all the things I have to thank God for from yesterday. The meals I shared, the things I did. And I'll even occasionally thank God for things that were not pleasant about yesterday. That's one reason I do it. And the other reason I do it is I'll go back and read through over everything that I read from yesterday. I'm an underliner. Whatever I underline, 
I will go back and read all the different sources that I looked at, and I will try to glean from all these sources that one thing that I sense God is trying to speak into my life. And that's a practice that I've, I've had for quite some time. I think when you get to moving too fast and we don't always get everything God is trying to say. And coming into the month of May, part of that, I, I began to, uh, I felt led, you know, since God saying, you need to pray, it's time for mountains to move. And let May be a month when mountains move. And I even felt led, I let things come to me. I let, I let God choose when I read a book or when I watch a certain program. I'm just always asking, what do I need to put before me, see put before me now? I'm currently reading uh, Moving Mountains by John Eldridge. It's a book on prayer. And another uh, thing that I'm doing prayer-wise prayer is I watch the National Community Church. National Community Church, Dr. Mark Batterson, I go to their services every week online. Uh, I, I'm just grateful for Mark and all the books he's written and God, the way God speaks through Mark. And he, he's written a book called Draw the Circle. It's a 40-day prayer challenge. And it, I'm just taking the 40-day prayer challenge. And every day I've been reading from this book and been praying. So I'm, there's a lot of concentrated time in prayer, asking, uh, seeking God's face, seeking what do you want me to learn? So those are some of the frameworks of what I'm about to share. And the last thing is this. I'm about to share my story in mosaic fashion. It's the way I think a lot of the times. It's uh, even the way I communicate. I didn't realize I was doing this, but often I will begin to tell a story. And it's like all these little random things I'm putting together. And I'm giving you just a piece here, a mosaic. If you're not familiar with what a mosaic is, a mosaic is an art piece made by inlaying small pieces of variously colored material to form pictures and patterns. Random things placed together, and when they're apart and they're just, you've got all these pieces apart, it's like, well, I don't see the connection or I don't, I, I don't see anything here. But then when you put these pieces together, you form a mosaic and it, it it makes an incredible picture. And so I'm sharing a story in mosaic form today. And that's very, very different for me. And that's why I'm hoping you'll stick around for the finished product. I'm going to let the Holy Spirit call attention to what he wants you to hear. I'm not trying to put anything together for you. I believe Another part of my framework is this. I think this is why we listen to one another's stories. This is why we have this podcast to listen to another person's story and see how God speaks to you about your own story. So here we go. First time ever, my mosaic of how God has been speaking to me these past couple of months. And I begin with the first piece, my favorite coffee mug. I have a coffee mug and I will take a photograph of this mug and I'll have it there on Facebook or I'll have it on the Redemption's Table page. But a couple of summers ago, I went to Charleston, South Carolina. And while I was there, I visited the Hunley Museum. The H.L. Hunley was a Confederate submarine 
and it was the first combat submarine to sink a warship. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a student of history. I love history. History fascinates me to go and to be where something happened, to consider the individuals who lived that history. It was as real to them as what I'm seeing and experiencing here right now today. And while I was there, I, I bought a coffee mug and it has a, uh, it has three things on it. At the very top of the mug, it has these words written, where life takes you. Next, it has an image of the Hunley, the submarine. And underneath that, it says, stay the course. On February 17th, 1864, eight members of this submarine crew boarded this crew, went out into Charleston Harbor, attacked the USS Housatonic, I think it's the way you say it, sank that ship, then went down to the bottom. They settled down into the bottom themselves, the submarine did. They did this in 1864, and then they just disappeared. Nobody knew what happened to the Hunley until it was discovered in 1995. So for 131 years, this crew were encased in this submarine. When I look at this coffee mug, it's my favorite mug because there's so much, it's very interesting to me. There's, there's where life tape takes you and where it took these eight individuals was on a mission that didn't end well for them. And then underneath that, it says, stay the course. I spoke on the, the Apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus's conversion experience on the road to Damascus this past Sunday at the church where I preach. And I was struck by the words that Jesus spoke to Ananias. Ananias was the disciple on the other end of that road to Damascus. He lived in Damascus. And Ananias was the disciple that Jesus spoke to and said, hey, you need to go out and you need to find Saul of Tarsus and you need to have a conversation with him. And, and <laughs> Saul was coming there to kill the Christ followers in Damascus. So, uh, you know, Ananias wasn't really thrilled about doing this, but I caught something this particular time in this particular passage when the Lord had to speak to Ananias the second time and said, I, I meant what I said. Here's what I want you to do. You go. He, he said, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their Kings and before the people of Israel and in verse 16, Jesus said this. He says, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Well, that's a foreign concept to American Christianity, suffering for the name of Jesus Christ. And, and yes, Paul experienced tremendous blessings through obedience, but I just thought that was very interesting. Very early on, on the day that he was called stop there in the road you know jesus told ananias i'm going to show him how much much he must suffer for my name not every mission we're sent on is going to end with success i think we have a false idea that obedience always ends in a success rally so that's my favorite coffee mug second part an ocean analogy 
I don't know why, but I think in terms of analogies all the time. And I'm really drawn to boat rides for some reason. Trips across the ocean. I have never been on a cruise. I hope to go someday. I really would love to sail across the ocean, sail across the Atlantic, sail across the Pacific. But there's something about going on a boat ride. Uh, it, it conveys a, a voyage. We're embarking on a voyage. One of my favorite boat rides, very simple boat ride. I love to go to Walt Disney World. And I'd rather go to the main gate, main street, to Walt Disney World. I'd rather go across on the ferry boat ride. Because you board that boat, you sail across this lake, ferry across this lake with the anticipation of what's coming on the other side and how good it's going to be. Some voyages, however, are going to be challenging. And uh, sometimes we have no choice but to get on board and to sail when moments happen in our lives like we're currently in with this pandemic. Number three, a poem. I recently discovered an English poet singer-songwriter and Anglican priest by the name of Malcolm Geit. And I heard him read one of his poems here about a week and a half ago. And this particular poem just resonated with me. It, it rang a bell. He is writing a, a poem. The name of the poem is a, The Christian Plummet. And it takes its departure from another poem from George Herbert's line in his poem, Prayer, where he describes prayer as the Christian plummet sounding heaven and earth. A plummet is where you attach a weight to a line and you drop the weight in the water and the line goes down and it's how you measure how deep the water is. Here's the Christian plummet. Down into the icy depths you plunge, the cold, dark undertow of your depression. Even your memories of light made strange as you fall further from all comprehension. You feel as though they've thrown you overboard, your fellow Christians on the sunlit deck. A stone-cold Jonah on whom scorn is poured, a sacrifice to save them from the wreck but someone has their hands on your long line. You sound for them the depths they sail above. One who takes Jonah as his only sign sinks lower still to hold you in his love. And though you cannot see or speak or breathe, the everlasting arms are underneath. Number four, my life calling. I have been following Jesus Christ since I was about 10 years old. I surrendered my life to follow him, to serve him as my life's calling. And I've been a worship leader. Back then, we called it minister of music. I've been a youth minister, minister of youth. I, I did that for 18 and a half years. That's how I want it to, that's, that's all I wanted to do. I have a good rapport with teenagers, loved working with teenagers. Hope God called me to preach. 
feel his spiritual gift for me is I'm a prophet. And a prophet just simply means you are proclaiming the word, the truth of God. I've been following Jesus. That's my life calling, spiritual gift, being a prophet to preach, to make disciples. That's out of obedience to what he told us in Matthew chapter 28. Go make disciples. That's lead people to understand the need to follow Jesus Christ. That's been my life's calling. Number five, a movie scene. 1993, I believe it was, there was a Western came out, Geronimo, an American legend. And there's a scene in the movie where Brigadier General Nelson Miles is being confronted by one of his second lieutenants, Lieutenant Davis, played by Matt Damon. Matt Damon is coming before General Miles to ask to be moved to another post. And the reason he is coming and saying, I want you to move me is because of the dishonorable way he perceived that the United States Army treated Geronimo when they surrendered and what they did to Geronimo and his followers. And when Lieutenant Davis leaves the presence of his commanding general, General Nelson Miles says this about him. He says, I hate an idealist. There's always something messy about them. When I first heard that quote in the theater, I thought, mm, yeah, that's me. I'm an idealist. I have always looked at the things that Jesus said, and I interpret them to mean that he meant us to do them. And I, when I see that not happening in the life of a church, it's bothersome to me. It's also equally bothersome when I see that not happening within me. Number six. A moment of my life when I was at my worst. This may very well be my striking the rock moment. Back in 2007, I had an idea, kind of downloaded upon my heart, uh, an idea, an evangelistic idea called the Jesus test. The Jesus test was very simple. It's just saying, hey, asking somebody to consider Jesus Christ for 30 days. Look at what he said, read the gospels and different accounts, consider different things about Jesus, a different aspect of who Jesus is for 30 days. Ask them to consider if Jesus is really who he claimed to be, the way, the truth, the life, no one comes to the Father except by him, and take 30 days. I mean, if, if he is who he says he is, which I believe he is, I know he is. If he is who he says he is, it would behoove anyone to take 30 days to seriously consider it. Lord laid that idea upon my heart. It took about two years to get that idea from thought to, to being ready to launch, to do an event called the Jesus Test. And 
2010 was one of the absolute best years of my life in regard to, to in regard to everything. It was just a great banner year. I felt like uh, there was a lot of great things happening that year. And in October of 2010, in the town of Brownfield, Texas, Calvary Baptist Church led their town and the other student ministries to do a three-day event called the Jesus Test. And in three days, we reached 20% of all the students that attended the high school there in Brownfield. It was a good event. It was, God was used it. It was, uh, it, it had its, um, it had never been done before. And a lot of times, you know, you're working out the kinks when you're trying to do something you've never done before. Kind of like doing a podcast and talking about mosaics. You're just, you know, I'm, I'm just riding along here. Um, this, this event took place October 8th, 9th, and 10th. And somewhere when I got ready to leave, I think it was that Monday morning, October the 11th, I was getting ready. I was spending the night there in Brownfield, getting ready to drive back to my home. The pastor, a good friend of mine, Steve Carter, there at uh, Brownfield, he told me they had an associational event at their church on that Sunday evening at the same time while the main event for the Jesus test was going on. And it was an associational event. And if you don't know, it's an association, a Baptist association is a collective group of churches, maybe 20 to 30 churches. And occasionally they have training events and they had that training event on that Sunday evening, but it was what Steve shared with me. He said, you know, they had two courses that night. And one of the courses that they were teaching was how to reach young people. <laughs> Another course that they were teaching was how to do evangelism. And it just flew all over me that here was an event that was well known going on, reaching young people in an evangelistic event taking place live while you've got a group of individuals at a church learning how to reach students and do evangelism. And there was just something terribly incongruent to all of that. It just struck me deep. And I got in my truck and I began to drive away from Brownfield and somewhere on that drive down toward Midland, Odessa, I blasted God with both barrels. I was angry, angry prophet. Much like Moses, when he was leading the children of Israel out in the wilderness, and instead of speaking to the rock, one time God led him to speak to a rock, and he did, and water came out. But there was one time when Moses had it up to here with God's people, and he said, you want to see water? And he struck the rock with his rod. And, and that was basically, that, no, not bad. That was what I was doing. I let God have an earful. I railed at God. I just lashed out at him in a way that I have since shortly thereafter, but in a way many, many times that I've been so ashamed that I did that. Now, I, I believe that God can handle our, our anger when we get angry at God, when we tell God off, when we give God a piece of our mind. God can handle that. God, God is amazing in his grace 
in his capacity, and he already knows what's going on in her heart. But nevertheless, that was a very shameful moment for me. And I never really fully tried to unpack what was really going on there and why I was so angry after having such an event, a successful event, as we had just had. So that's a moment of my life when I was at my worst. Next part, the worst season of my journey. A little over four months later, my wife of 29 years, whom I believed we had a good marriage, I loved, left. Decided she no longer wanted to be married. And that was the worst season of my journey. And I spent a good portion of time the next two years from the day she left in February of 2011 until the early part of 2013, praying for our family, praying for her, praying for me, just pouring scripture over that, praying, and then oftentimes praying, and you don't really know what's going on. My counselor told me that I was borderline post-traumatic stress disorder, and I was. But somewhere in my prayers and praying over that, I linked two things together in my prayers, it just dawned on me one day as I was praying and I asked God's forgiveness. I was like, God, in that moment when I lashed out at you and I criticized your church, I mean, I railed to God about the church, the organized church and the inconsistency of the church and the impotence of the church. I said, in that day when I did that, Jesus, I was attacking your bride, of whom I'm a, I'm a part of. I'm a part of your bride. And I was like, dear God, did I take a hedge of protection off my own bride by doing that? I attacked your bride, and then in that moment when I needed, this is the way my mind was running, this is the way my prayers were running, I'm just being open here. I just linked the two together. Whether I ever should have or not, I don't know. But you know, there's sometimes when you don't know the source of why something's happening, you bring it out on the table between you and God and you pray about it. But that became linked in my mind and has for quite some time between those two worst moments when I lashed out at God, that worst moment, and then the worst thing that ever happened, the worst season when my wife left in 2011. After two years, I moved to Alabama. And part of the reason I came back to Alabama, I was attending a a service, a, a, an evangelism service in Georgia, I heard Dr. Robert Smith Jr., professor of preaching at Beeson Divinity School, and I've never heard a message that was more preached to me than the message he preached that night in February of 2013. There are two things he said in that message where God just pierced my heart. One was this, never place a period where God has placed a comma. And I had done that. I had, in order to save, salvage, to show that 
family, marriage was more important than ministry. I'd put a pause. I didn't preach for two years. So there was that. Never put a period where God has placed a comma. And then the next thing he said is make your mess your message. And I understood that to be very much like Simon Peter when Jesus met him there on the beach after breakfast to Galilee and sent him back to feed his lambs. And that was a recalling point for me. Make your mess your message, or in this case, what we're doing this week, make your mess your mosaic. So I moved to Alabama in April of 2013. And I don't know if it's because the seven-year anniversary of moving to Alabama just happened to fall this time during this pandemic, but I began to go back to having thoughts about me striking the rock, me lashing out at God, because I'll just give you a real quick rundown of what's happened in the seven years I've been in Alabama. And Alabama, this is my home state. I never had any intention of coming back here in many, many, many ways. It's been so incredibly redemptive, but long story short, short, I am not a full-time anything. Uh, I sell insurance. I'm ill-matched for that. Grateful for it, but ill-matched for it. I was a United Methodist pastor for three years. I'm grateful for the two churches I had the opportunity to serve in Georgiana. Those precious people were who I was there to serve, but I had to leave the United Methodist Church. It was a choice because of, to me, a a huge theological difference in baptizing infants. Baptism is a personal choice, and it has to be a personal choice, and no person can baptize you on your behalf. That's not scriptural. I am grateful for the United Methodist Church. I am grateful for the tremendous amount of grace that they extended to me to allow me to be in their system for three years. But I could not just go along to get a full-time job. It never evolved into a full-time job. I've sent out 142 resumes since I've been in Alabama to Baptist churches, which is my background. I'm a Christ follower. That's what's most important to me. Denomination of a long time ago. I just put all that in the in the background. I'm grateful for the Baptist Church for leading me in discipleship in formative years, but I don't consider myself a Baptist. I don't consider myself a, a United Methodist. I don't consider myself anything but a follower of Jesus Christ. But I sent out 142 resumes to Baptist churches, and the few that did respond immediately it all shut down when they discovered oh you're divorced i didn't know this and moving back to alabama but being divorced in the state of alabama in 2020 is still an unpardonable sin for a pastor for a minister so therefore i'm really grateful for the grace and the understanding and comprehension of grace of the united methodist church And I share that to say this, I'm going to just tell you, maybe you're on the outside of the church looking in and I'll tell you what I told my family a long time ago. You never blame God for God's children. Do not blame God for God's people. Why? If you read the Bible, the Bible, we're all squirrely. (laughs) All of us are squirrely and flunk out on God's glory. 
whenever man gets his hands on something, we grip it too hard and leave our fingerprints in areas where God doesn't need our fingerprints. He's doing fine without us. He prayed the night before he died. May they make them one, Father God, as you and I are one. And we just take it for 2,000 years. We've just done everything we can to bust that prayer up. And don't be sitting there thinking, well, I attend the church. That is that one church. And if everybody come along to our side, I'm sorry you don't. But as I was coming into the pandemic, the last really seven, eight months, I've had... Uh, in addition to the United Methodist opportunity, I had two other potentially full-time positions of ministry that never materialized. And both of them wrapped up in 2019. So all of that has set the stage for the, this present season for the enemy to whisper to me again. And I know that what he's whispering is not the truth but just what runs through the back of my mind every now and then is you struck the rock and you're not going back into ministry again because you struck the rock. You're like Moses who once he struck that rock, God said, you're not entering the promised land. And so it's like you begin to believe that maybe the way you're perceived of being unpardonable is really the truth. <laughs> About a week and a half ago, I was walking up in some woods nearby where I enjoy getting out and walking. And I took this concern before the Lord and he already knew it was before him where I was just praying over this issue and, Within a matter of days, here's what took place. I was uh, reading one morning Bob Goff's devotional, uh, and he said this. He said, if mess-ups were push-ups, he'd be totally ripped. <laughs> I couldn't help but laugh at that. And he said, aren't you glad God's response to our failure is always grace? And I know that. And as I was out walking in prayer, I heard God speak. And he said, you know that road coming out of Brownfield, Texas? That road where on October the 11th, 2010, you blasted me. That road was washed clean by my blood a long time ago, Robert. <laughs> and just in case you, you think I couldn't have found you on that road and didn't know where you were, I'll tell you, every road coming out of Brownfield was covered in, in the blood of Jesus. It was covered by me. You remember that night, Robert, you were coming back from Carlsbad, coming back down toward Van Horn, Texas, and you encountered that flash flood coming across the desert and how you drove across rather foolishly. Uh, but you had your door open, make sure it wasn't, but you, you experienced a flash flood and how long it, it went and covered that road. Robert, I, I have a, every road coming out of Brownville was covered by the blood of forgiveness. That's how my blood covered your road, your heart, your rage, your words, your, your 
prayer. You're lashing out at me. And that was the image that Jesus brought to my mind. A couple of days later, I mean, this went on for a couple of days, and I was just like, I was kind of wild by that, just that incredible imagery. It's like, once for all, he's like, I'm going to get through to you that this is a done deal, and you have been forgiven. Two days later, I'm walking back up in the same woods, and he speaks again. He said, every road out of Brownfield was completely covered with the blood. Robert, you are so covered with my blood that your puny little self-righteousness that showed itself on October the 11th, 2010, in coming unglued at the impotence of the church is gone. It's been drowned. And then God spoke these words and just simple words. Again, my mind works in bits and pieces like most, the way he comes to me and speaks to me. And he was just like, he said, would you just be kind to yourself? You have been beating yourself up for months, even before this pandemic rolled in. Would you just be kind to yourself? And I was like, yes, I will. That didn't mean for me to go get Krispy Kreme donuts or buy, you know, buy chocolate ice cream or whatever. I just resolved, come Thursday, I'm going to be kind to myself. Thursday was just, the next day was just incredibly freeing. You know, Friday morning as I'm sitting there at my table, I'm journaling. And I wrote this, and I experienced this. I wrote, you, Holy Spirit, have been revealing the reality of the road out of Brownfield that I knew was forgiven, but which the enemy kept trying to convince me was not, or that I was somehow a Moses forbidden from entering the promised land. And that's why it's been seven years and still no traction in regard to returning to a full-time calling like you once had. And I wrote, it's amazing how once I surrendered to your whisper, Holy Spirit, to be kind to myself, yesterday was like walking out of a prison cell that had never been locked. And I went on to write, and now I'm sitting here this morning Pondering faith that moves mountains and learning the lesson of a glacial erratic, a huge stone moved from one place to another. How many glacial erratics, otherwise known as mountains, are in the ocean already? Speak to the earth and let it teach you. That's the prayer, remember, from Job chapter 12, George Washington Carver had circled in his Bible, and I wrote, Sovereign Lord, you are moving mountains. You have allowed me to see this with the eyes of faith. Last piece of the mosaic, a song. When the Holy Spirit whispered to me to be kind to myself, I on that Friday morning, I remembered, uh, I think Andrew Peterson, I'm just now learning the music of Andrew Peterson, and I'm taking it a 
an album at a time. And if you're not familiar with him and this incredible Christian songwriter, I encourage you to get to know his music. He's been hidden in plain sight for 20 years. But he wrote a song to his kids called Be Kind to Yourself. And I want to close with the words of this song. You got all that emotion that's heaving like an ocean and you're drowning in a deep, dark well. I can hear it in your voice that if you only had a choice, you'd rather be anyone else. I love you just the way that you are. I love the way he made your precious heart. Be kind to yourself. I know it's hard to hear it when that anger in your spirit is pointed like an arrow at your chest, when the voices in your mind are anything but kind, and you can't believe your father knows best. God says, I love you just the way that you are. Peterson writes, I love the way he's shaping your heart. Be kind to yourself. And then here's the line that really got me. How does it end when the war that you're in is just you against you against you? Got to learn to love, learn to love, learn to love your enemies too. You can't expect to be perfect in a fight you've got to forfeit. You belong to me, whatever you do. So lay down your weapon, take a deep breath, and believe that I love you. Hear God's Spirit speak to you in your mosaic in this moment. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to yourself. You got to learn to love, learn to love, learn to love your enemies too. Until next week, we'll be right here again at this table.